Well, how is everybody today? We're happy to have this family visiting from Ruth. I learned something new today about Ruth. Also, we have some other visitors. I, Vic and Dan, you have some folks with you, do you? Welcome. Glad you're here. And anybody else that's visiting, we're, we're happy to have you here at the Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today we're going to go through Ephesians chapter 4, so take a Bible. We have Bibles in the pews, and uh, we're going to try and fit the sermon with the life of our congregation where we're laying an emphasis on nominating committee and ministry and service. So there's a passage there in Ephesians 4 that I think fits in very, very well. And if we have to choose key words today... I'm going to read the passage to you in just a moment, and then I want you to give me two key words from that passage. So I'm cluing you in now before we pray. So when you pray with me now, you can say, Lord, I'm clueless. What are the two words that I need to come up with, right? But no, we need to pray now for God's Spirit to dwell with us, continue to dwell with us, to open His Word to us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we know that You have created this massive universe through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet you would condescend to the life of Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, to deal with sin once and forever. And we praise and we thank you for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very soon, Jesus rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven, and there He is ministering as our high priest. And He gave gifts to mankind. And Lord, every one of us who is in Christ here this morning has received some of these gifts from You. We want to be faithful servants. We want to use these gifts, Your gifts, Christ's gifts, to build up Christ's church. We want the Anderson Church to be a lighthouse in this community. And that every person that's gathered here this morning to take good news back to their community so that your kingdom can grow and Christ will come soon. May your spirit be with us this morning and open your word. May it come alive to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, take your Bibles, and we're looking at Ephesians, what chapter? Chapter 4. Now, here's a clue in studying Paul's writings. We had a little bit of discussion. It's amazing how we can go from the Psalms or whatever we're studying and end up in Paul's writings, but... As you know, he wrote a number of letters, and you can pretty much split them right down the middle. And you can say, for example, in a book like Ephesians, the first three chapters are giving us teaching and doctrine. It is glorious doctrine. You'll really not find anything better in the whole of Scripture than the first three chapters of Ephesians. And you won't know how hard it is for me not to preach that to you today, because it is glorious material. If any of you are discouraged this morning, if you feel that you're straying from the Lord, read 
Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Slowly, word by word, ask the Holy Spirit to apply it to your life and you will be rejuvenated. But once we receive this grace of God, this good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to do something. Sometimes people will say to me, well, what do I do now that I'm a Christian? And I'm assuming that most of you here this morning are indeed Christians. If you're not, then you need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ because He died for you. And you can't deal with the sin problem yourself, so let Jesus do it. Embrace Him. Let His Spirit convert you and change you and make you what He wants you to be. Now, part of this conversion process, this salvation process, we should think of in terms of service. We should think of in terms of what do I do now that I'm a Christian, now that I'm converted, now that I've been baptized, or whatever. So in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. So that's one of the first things that you have to do as a Christian. Have you been called? This is not time for a Sabbath nap. Have you been called? You need to shake the kingdom of Satan. Yes, I've been called. Praise God. Hallelujah. Don't qualify it in any way. God is the one who does the calling. And if you have responded, say, yes, I have been called. Now, if you've been called by God, what, should, what is the first thing that Paul tells you to do? It's right there in the text. What does he ask you to do? Live a life, in this translation, worthy of that calling. So yes, you've been called. That's all, all the grace of God. Now you are to live a certain kind of lifestyle. It will be a very different lifestyle than you lived before. It's a Christ-like life that you are to live now. Be completely humble and gentle before you were arrogant. You push people around. No longer. If you still have those traits, then they need to go. Be patient, bearing with one another, how? In love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the key word there? All are one. But those are not the verses I'm going to preach on. This is just background. This is, in, this is introduction to the text that I'm going to speak on. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Now, I'm not going to preach on this, but it's an important point. Those who are called by God, who are called to live this holy, worthy life, have received the grace of God. And I understand the grace of God to, be, to manifest itself in many different ways. And one of those ways is in verses 12 to 16, which I'm going to speak on in just a moment. So just kind of bear that in mind. God has been gracious to you to save your soul. Yes, that's very clear. 
read the first three chapters and these verses I've already read, but also gracious to allow you to minister to humanity. To each one of us, grace has been given. This is why it says, when He ascended on high, He led captives in His train, He gave gifts to men. What does He ascended mean except that He descended to the lower earthly regions? He who ascended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. All commentators are divided on what it means here, but it probably is talking about the condescension of Christ when He took humanity, probably talking about His sacrifice on the cross and His ascension to heaven. And when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven and they had this great coronation, this great celebration, the whole universe was on tiptoe to see if Christ would seal the deal. Did Jesus seal the deal on Calvary? Yes, He did, absolutely. And that's the first three chapters. He really did. But He did something. He gave gifts. Sometimes we call them spiritual gifts. We can call them Christ-like gifts. Godly gifts. And, it was, and here He spells out a few of those gifts. And nowhere in Scripture do we have a complete list of all of the gifts of Christ. It is a mistake to try and limit the hand of God. I want to put God into some little box. Like J.B. Phillips once said, your God is too small. Hey, as the population is in Greece, as we have billions and billions of people, as the church of God increases, so I expect the gifts to increase. We don't know what all the gifts of God are. Whatever is needed to advance His kingdom, He will give it. He knows what's best. He's the head of the church. Christ knows what's best. And I have known missionaries. Vic mentioned about being a missionary. I have known uh, missionaries who have never had the gift of tongues until they needed them. And God has given them instantaneously a new language. Boy, I'd like to learn Spanish. What a neat way. Well, there's really no learning. It's given by God. And as this missionary um, ministered to this headhunting tribe, and when he eventually left those regions, he never spoke the language again. So God gives what is needed for the church to grow. And in and this context, we're thinking primarily of what does the Anderson church need to grow. But of course, you can extend this to the worldwide church. It was God who gave some to be what? Apostles some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now you're looking for those two key words. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its 
work. Now in verses 12 through 16, what are the two key words that we're looking for? Speak up. Pastor's getting old. He's getting hard of hearing. What's the key words? Did someone say grow? Growing up? Actually, that's the title of this sermon this morning. Grow up. So grow, in the NIV it was used a number of times, is the key word. And what's the other word? I think unity would be certainly a key word. The word I'm thinking of, together with growth, is the word maturity. In other words, living the worthy life of the Christian, which we saw in, I believe it was, was it verse 1? Living the worthy life, living the Christian life, there has to be growth. There has to be maturity. It is not good enough if God's kingdom is to expand and if there's to be a cohesiveness there that kind of holds us. Have you ever thought about that? What really holds us together as a people, as Seventh-day Adventists? Then there has to be maturity. God cannot have Seventh-day Adventists going around at least for too long, in spiritual diapers or with pacifiers. I was talking to somebody this week, maybe it was one of our members, I can't remember. I think it was in prayer meeting about pacifiers. It's amazing what you discuss in prayer meeting. Pacifiers. And I said, in England, we call them what? Those of you that were in prayer meetings should remember. We call them dummies. Now don't ask me why. I don't understand any rhyme or reason in the English language at all. But we call them dummies. So my children, when they were little in England, would say, I, I want my dummy. And when they came over to America, if they, were, if they were in this country, they obviously can't use a word like pacifier and maybe not even use a shorter word like dummy so, so the pacifier became known as the no-no. So we would say as parents, no, you don't need that. And that became the no-no. My children would be so embarrassed if they heard this now. Well, it's a no-no for you as a Christian to not grow and mature. It's dishonoring to God. And so he lists here a number of gifts. As I said, there's um, other places in the, in the Bible where we could talk of spiritual gifts. Um, this is Ephesians 4. We could also talk of 1 Peter 4. So if any of you are taking notes and you want to know where the spiritual gifts are in the Bible, this is pretty much where most of them are. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Romans what? 12, and 1 Corinthians 12. Isn't that an easy way of memorizing things? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. That's where you have most of the, the spiritual gifts listed. Often it is in the context of 
growing God's kingdom and having unity in the church, and there is always some comment on love. Always. Because Christians, that's part of your growth process, is learning how to love one another. And in a church like Corinth, they struggled in that area. They were much quicker to divide and polarize and get in one another's face. And so they, that's where you have the whole love chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. You ever thought why that's there? Because in 1 Corinthians 12, it's about spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 14, it's about two spiritual gifts. Which gifts? Prophecy and tongues. And then in the middle, in a multi-talented church, in a multi-gifted church, this whole love chapter. And of course, to, to exercise any of these, these God-given gifts, uh, if it's not under the umbrella of love, then it is uh, an abomination to God. So, title of my sermon, Growing Up, Keywords, Growth and Maturity. And in verse 12, let's go back. He says, here's the reason why we have these five gifts mentioned here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, something passes and teaches is one gift, so maybe four or five, is to prepare God's people for works of service. So if you're asking your pastor, because people always wonder what pastors do. They think that they're uh, invisible for six days, for example, and incomprehensible on, on the Sabbath day. So what are pastors to do? Pastors are to equip you, God's people, if you're a Christian, for God's works of service. So you don't know how to give a Bible study? Aha! Uh -huh. Hopefully there is a shepherd in the church, whether we call him or her a pastor or elder, who does know how to do that. So is it possible that you could go to that shepherd in the church and be equipped to know how to give a Bible study. Does that make sense? That is how God's church grows. And God wants all of His churches to grow. Not just numerically, but spiritually. Quality, not just quantity. He wants His church to grow both ways. And if God has to choose between quality and quantity, He will always go with quantity. But the point I'm making this morning in this sermon is don't think you are growing spiritually unless you're doing works of service for your fellow man and for God. Because ultimately, He's the one that saves us. He's the one that we're answerable to. And so we're working for God, right? I'm not working for the conference office, am I? I'm not working for the Anderson Seventh-day Adventist Church, am I? First, well, I may be, but first, I'm working for God. And it's important never to forget that. Always keep it in that, in that context. And when you misuse the gifts, then you need to talk to God about that. 
and you need to repent of your sins because that's what it is. And if you're not using your gifts, also you need to repent of your sins because that's what you're doing. You're not allowing the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do in your life if you're holding back. And in a church like Anderson that has lost some key spiritual leaders, we need others to step up to the plate. And I hope the Holy Spirit really works big time on your heart as I'm speaking. Because some of you are obviously equipped to give leadership in this congregation. And for reasons best known to yourself, you're holding back. Don't hold back. It is not a joyful thing in the Christian life to hold back. It's a joyful thing to surrender. To let God have His will and His way. I love to see those questionnaires where people like Carol Hodges and Vic, Vic was in charge of the nominating committee, so I'm going to specially emphasize it with Vic, where they say, just use me wherever you will. Now, if we ask Vic, Carol, or whoever to do something that they don't feel equipped, then the onus is upon them to say, sorry, uh, use me somewhere else. And we respect that. Because we should know how we are equipped, right? I may have told you the story before of a guest in my home. Somebody that my wife and I look on as a, as a wonderful Christian. And he was, I don't know how old he was, but he was getting up there in years, and he says, been a Seventh-day Adventist for many, many years, and he says, Pastor Terry, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. And I almost fell off my chair. To me, it's incomprehensible to not know how God has gifted you. Because you're supposed to do something when you're a Christian. Now, I'm sure he had been doing a lot. He was a very kind, loving Christian man. But he also needs to learn how God has equipped him. And so I tried to help him to, to think that through, talk that through, study that through, and, and understand how God works in our lives. So to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ, that's another term for the church, the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. So it's as though unity is something we have and yet something we strive for. Because when the devil really throws his darts at us, he has an, he has an opportunity to divide us, right? Now, I don't really see that happening at the Anderson Church, at this point in time, but it has happened in our history, and it may well happen in the future. There are times when Satan seems to come on very strong in your individual life or in the church family in a collective way. So unity is something we should have, something that we should strive towards, and obviously it's a big thing to God. If it wasn't a big thing to God, of course, it wouldn't be in these verses. But think of the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ in John 17. One of the most beautiful prayers anywhere in Scripture. And if you want to know what prayer is, go to John 17. And there he emphasizes in different ways uh, the, the importance of these. And think of these, think of these disciples that he worked with. How how much in, in they were trying to build themselves up. 
But they were converted. They were eventually filled with the Holy Spirit. And they had to learn. There was still a learned process there. You can see that in the life of Peter, where you think, hey, this man really has his act together as far as uh, the Gentiles joining the church, which was primarily Jewish. So if ever there was an opportunity for a polarized church, it was when the Gentiles came in to a Jewish church, and they outnumbered the Jews. There's no problem no problem for a church that's filled up with Jewish people if one or two Gentiles come in and give the mission story. No problem. But what happens when those Gentiles take my place in the pew? Then there's a problem. And most of you, most of you New Testament, a large portion of the New Testament revolves around that issue. Most of Paul's writings revolve around that issue. How can we get along with one another? Yes, we're all Christians, but hey, I'm a Gentile and you're a Jew. I'm a male, you're a female. There's so many differences. And so obviously unity is, is, is a gift of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's also something we have to do. We have to, you know, if we can't get along with one another on earth, what's it going to be like in, in heaven? Are you going to have a dividing wall in the new earth? You have your plot, they have their plot. You're not even going to talk to one another when you hang up the washing. So, let each man examine his own heart. We, we need to strive towards unity, verse 13, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. So that's, an, that's a, a, um, a demonstration of unity in the body is where there's maturity. Where maybe we don't just completely agree with something, but nevertheless, we're willing to, to compromise. Dare I use that word? It was in our Sabbath school lesson this morning. Tolerant. There's another word that's a dangerous word to use in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I reminded them in my class that Acts chapter 15, where this Jew-Gentile issue came to a head, you had a compromised statement. There has to be give and take in God's church. We have to be mature enough to know what to stand for, though the heavens fall. We're not going to budge on this point, right? Do we know what, what it's worth dying for? Do we know what it's worth standing for? Even a, a man like uh, Martin Luther, who said some terrible things against Jewish people, by the way, don't give the great controversy to a Jew. Well, it worked with Clifford Goldstein, didn't it? So maybe you can do with some of them. But he had some terrible things to say against, against Jewish people. And he was a hot-headed man in, in many respects. But he would have laid down his life for the gospel if God would have required that of him. And if that man did not stand strong on what is the most important, getting the Word of God into the hands of of the ordinary man in a language that they can understand. Righteousness by faith, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If he had not stood strong when he needed to stand strong, maybe we would never have had the Protestant Reformation. Or God would have simply raised up other people to do that work. Now if I understand the, the Bible and the writings of Ellen White correctly, there's going to be a tremendous testing time in the Seventh-day Adventist church, right? Right? 
And many who seem to stand strong in easy times uh, do not stand strong in tough times. So there has to be a maturity taking place. Otherwise, as a babe, you're going to fall. And as he says here in verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. I'm, I'm shocked, and I'm, as I'm sure you are at times, the, the foolishness of the ideas out there that people fall for. Uh, this polygamist Mormon man, have you been hearing about that? Pretty distasteful. Not something I really want to, to cover in, in a sermon. Um, or things in the more mainstream Christ, Christianity. Things within Seventh-day Adventists that, that people who should know better have fallen all over the place with false teaching, false behavior, and so on and so forth. And by the way, this is not a new problem. It was very much a problem in the early Christian church. So if you read a letter like Corinth, the Corinthians letters 1 and 2, you'll see there, and by the way, there was a third one that we somehow have no record of. But when you read First and Second Corinthians, uh, you see that these people who lived in this very permissive, pagan environment, they needed to have it spelt out to them how you are to live. Yes, maybe you, you used to go with the temple prostitutes, no more. Well, isn't that obvious? They're Christians. Christians don't do things like that. Well, some of them did. And some of them were still thieving, stealing. Some of them were still lying. These things have to go if those individuals and if the church is to be what Christ wishes it to be. Now, I love children. Amen? I love them so much I don't call them kids. Because kids are what? Yeah, they're baby goats. I don't want to. These beautiful children that came up this morning, do you want to call them baby goats? When they get old enough, they might remind you, hey, I never appreciated that. I don't look like a goat, and I don't want to behave like a goat. So what are some of the characteristics that we should see in children? Well, with children, we find that they're fickle, right? Children um, are unstable. They change. They often have a lack of self-control. They're impulsive. Sometimes they can be moody. I just uh, called my daughter up. She'd taken the children to San Diego, and I says, well, how did it go? Now, San Diego is a place that I like. Don't you? I mean, can anything good come out of San Diego? Yeah, there's lots of good things. Pretty nice weather. She said it was cloudy when she was there. I says, how were the children? They were grumpy. They were moody. Now, this is something that they look forward to. But when they were at the zoo, the children wanted to be at the beach. Yeah, but this is not time to be at the beach. This is time to be at the zoo. And hey, we've paid a lot of money to take you to the zoo. 
Did the children care? Were they into that? No. They wanted to be playing on a beach. And this isn't, this isn't a criticism of children. This is just talking about characteristics of children. Children are to behave differently than adults. Because children are children. They're not grown up. But sometimes Christian adults can be like children and can behave like children. And this is an insult to God. This is not the work of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing worse than finding a person, for example, who is not growing in their personality, in their character, in their experience of life. I remember a relative um, who had a very bad divorce and um, got to the point where the husband could pretty much not even look at the wife anymore, which is his problem, by the way, not hers. And eventually divorced her, and it was a very, what was a really bad divorce. And I would talk to her years and years and years later, and she was still dwarfed by that experience. Now, in some ways, of course, we can understand that, and we can certainly sympathize with that. But that is not a healthy thing to allow another person to freeze you in time or a situation in life which may or may not be of, of your own choosing. That's why with sin, when we fall into sin, we are not to be frozen in the corner, not come to church anymore because of that sin, right? And yet you know that many, many, many do that. Eventually we call them backsliders, which is not the nicest term. Maybe we can think of a better one, non-attending Christians or whatever. But they go through experiences in life, many of us can go through experiences in life that freeze us. And we don't progress from that point on. That's not healthy. That's not desirable. We have to learn from the experiences that we go through. We need to grow from the experiences. Even when we sin, we are to learn from that, right? We are to grow from that. We are to mature from that. God can always bring good out of evil. We don't commit the evil to experience the good. No, we don't want to go down that road. But if we do stumble, if we do make the mistake, if someone treats us wrongly or whatever, how can we go, Lord, what are you up to? That's a fair question to ask, don't you think so? What are you up to? Why is this happening in my life? But Lord, your will be done. Whatever way it goes, your will be done. That is a mature way to look at life. So we see this uh, instability with children, this fickleness with children. That is not to be a characteristic of a mature, growing Christian. And then we also see that Satan's busy. Now, he's not mentioned here. He is very much mentioned in, in chapter 6. So we don't have to read very much more material to find his uh, scheming, his craftiness against God's people. And of course, that's a whole sermon within itself. Do we realize that we're in the middle of a war? Most Americans don't realize we're in the middle of a war whether it be in Iraq 
or Afghanistan. Most of us don't feel that, right? Well, what about in your Christian life? Is the devil going to back off because you're a nice person? Because you're so sweet. He's going to have a day off, right? Well, no, he doesn't have a day off. We wish that he did. And when Christ comes back and when he wraps up this whole great controversy, then the devil will have a very, very long holiday. But until then, we're in warfare, folks. And mature people don't fall for his schemes. Paul says in chapter 6, we need to stand and we need to stand strong. In verse 15, instead we speak the truth in love. Notice that truth comes before love. The big emphasis in, the, in Christianity in the ecumenical movement on unity, which clearly is a strong theme in this book, the whole book. But truth comes before unity and even before love. And as Seventh-day Adventists, traditionally, we are people of the truth. We even use phrases like, he or she read themselves into the truth, right? And I know it was my quest for truth, which I believe was a God-given desire in my heart before I was a Christian, that eventually brought me to Christ and into the Seventh-day Adventist church. So truth, in all of its forms, is really important. And remember, ultimately, truth became a person, was embodied in the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you and I that hopefully feel passionately about truth as we have discovered it, and have we discovered all truth? No, none of us can be arrogant, not even as a denomination can we be arrogant and, and make a claim like that. Truth, just like unity and just like growth and maturity, is a progressive thing. But you're not going to progress to truth that to new truth that contradicts old truth. So it's it's truth that's truth in its core, and it develops, it blossoms, it flourishes, but it comes from the same. Uh, seed the same, the same root. But as passionate as we are about truth, whether it be in the form of Jesus or in the form of teaching, we have to express that in words and in actions under the umbrella of love. If we had time to jump over to Corinthians, in, in, in the love chapter, Paul says, I could have the gift of prophecies. I could speak all the truth. I could have more knowledge than anyone. But without love, is it a value? No. So that also is a sign of maturity. We speak the truth in love. Verse 15, And in all things we grow up into Him who is the head, Christ. He is the head of the church. So think of the human body because that's what Paul is likening you and I to. We are part of this body of Christ. And you fit into the body in many different ways, but you're not the head. You're not the boss. 
You're not top dog. No matter if you're pastor so-and-so, you're the best preacher on planet Earth, or you're the general conference president, or whoever, you are part of the whole. And in the body, you could say, well, what's the most important part of the body? The head? We haven't figured out how to do a head transplant yet. Face, heart, hands, yes. Legs, running in the Olympics. You heard about that gentleman running. A guy can run fast on artificial legs. Most of us can't run fast on regular legs. Christ is the head, and in a sense, the head controls the whole body. The way we're wired, we talk with the medical people in our church, everything is, in, is connected to the head. And we might seem an insignificant little finger, or even a little nail. But boy, hit that little finger, that little nail, with a hammer. That'll show whether you're a Christian or not. And it'll also show whether you're a mature Christian or not. And the whole body hurts. So whether we understand it, and I do think it is something which we have to grow in our understanding, we're all interconnected with one another. And we all come under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. What grieves you probably grieves me. When you hurt, I should hurt. When you are happy, I should be happy. We really need to love and care for one another in that way. I believe eventually the Lord got the disciples to that point. And I think you can see it in somebody like Peter very clearly when he's willing to lay his life down they're going to crucify him on a cross. Now, it's not many of us that have a prophecy that tells us how we're going to die. Right? And I don't know if you'd want that kind of prophecy. But he got that. He received that from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Jesus said, Peter, follow me. Did Peter follow? Did Peter die? Did Peter grow and mature through that experience? Is the church blessed because of that? Some people want to claim Peter so much, like the Roman Catholic Church, that they won't let us have a piece of Peter. But we do have a piece of Peter. And we can learn, yes, from his mistakes, but we can also learn from his growth and his maturity. And he became, under the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, a very great leader in the early Christian church. Let's wrap this up. Verse 16, From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part, fingernail, toe, hand, whatever part you are of the whole, you must do your part. And it's really not for myself or the nominating committee to tell you what that part is. Yes, we can suggest. Yes, we can pray. Yes, we can think things through with you. But ultimately, you're responsible to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is living within your life. He has equipped you for what He wants you to do right now. You're not waiting for the outpouring of the latter rain to be equipped. You're equipped now. Everything you need 
to live a godly Christian life has been given to you. And if God should see some other need in His body, in Christ's body, then He will give an individual or a group of people what is necessary with gifts to move the church forward. We do have a need here at the Anderson Church for strong, mature leadership. Strong, mature leadership is going to be strong on where they need to be strong and flexible where they need to be flexible. Ultimately, you're to look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, the master shepherd who does not drive the sheep, but who guides them to living water. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I came not to be served, but to serve God and humanity. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly, he's the epitome of humility and graciousness. But Lord, let us also look at Jesus in terms of growth and maturity. The writer of Hebrews says that, that he learned holiness by the life that he lived, by the temptations that he went through when he ministered to his fellow man. What a tremendous uh, lifestyle for us to emulate. So Lord, we focus on Jesus Christ and we see him a servant of the servants. Make us the same way. Take away our pride, our arrogance, our selfishness, whatever barriers we throw up. And may your spirit have his way in each one of our lives. And we give you praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.